0: Welcome to the Mondo Neon Show. Argon, Neon, Helium, Xenon, Krypton, Transform and Rollout. It's Max at uh, Mondo Neon and I'm with Robert Halls. And thanks for coming on, Neon Artist in Alaska. Thank you. Yeah, Great and so to Robert, be here. Yeah, thanks. And you know, a long time in the coming. We've been talking for a while about doing this. so I do thank you for taking this time out. As far as, you know, just, I always ask kind of where the general direction is when people kind of got started, but you've got a long kind of rich history. Uh, I guess tell us about the beginnings of Neon as far as a uh, work is concerned, and maybe just you can go far back as you like.
1: Well, for me personally, and I, uh, even as a kid, I did a lot of high voltage stuff and, and electronics and various assorted thing. I I even still have a Van de Graaff generator and a Tesla coil from my elementary school days. And, uh, you know, and I, I grew up around this stuff and I saw neon and was fascinated by it even as a a youngster. And, um, Oh, I guess, uh, late eighties, I was in school and I saw a, uh, post on a bulletin board in the common area, um, saying custom neon on a phone number and my college roommate and I thought it'd be really neat to have some neon in the dorm. And so I called the guy and, uh, I got to talking to him and my, my friends and I, we always, you know, used to, to being silly kids, used to greet each other with a healthy, hearty fuck off. And you can bleep (laughs) that if you must. But uh, that was uh, just, you know, amongst us and, you know, pretty common <laughs> day-to-day occurrence. <laughs> so I, I called this guy and I said, hey, what would you charge me to make a, a neon fuck off to go in my dorm room?
0: There you go.
1: And he quoted me about $150, which at the time was way more money than I had to throw at that. But I understood how this stuff worked. And I said, well how about if I bend the glass and you put the, the ends in it and fill it, how much then? And he says, well, it's really not that simple. It's it's very complex and difficult. I said, yeah, yeah, but, you know, how much would it be? And finally we got around to it and he said about $12. <laughs> and then I'd have to buy a transformer. I said, that's perfect. I'll do it. And he, again, reminded me that it's a lot more complicated than it sounds and I said, you know, okay. And he says, but I'll give you a tour of the shop. Now, I immediately accepted that, of course. What I didn't know at the time was that was a really big deal. Um, people were very secretive about it at that time. It was very unusual for a tube bender to tell you anything, let alone a tour of the shop.
0: Right. Well, here's so, that too, Robert, for anybody listening? Like, where are we at right now in terms of like what's what- that now? What year are we in right now? Kind that, of like- that,
1: would have been, that would have been 88 or 89.
0: Okay.
1: And uh, so I went over to his shop, and it was uh, the closest thing to a modern-day Frankenstein laboratory that you would see. Um, he had a, a pole transformer that he was using as his bombarder, and it was uh, located where you could see it, and it was rather impressive. And we went through... a a few basic uh, lessons and discussion about uh, what was going on. And uh, I bought some glass from him and I took it back home and I struggled a lot. Part of it, I didn't have the correct fires. Part of it, I didn't know what I was doing. He was right, it was very difficult. But after a few days, I managed to make a a mountainscape uh, scene and I brought it back and, and then he walked me through the process of, of bombarding and filling it. And I took it home and hung it up. And then I made a few more things this way, you know, gradually getting better. And eventually it, it led into building some better tools and buying some other tools. And it became a, a career for several years. Um, I worked, uh, this was in Texas, and then I worked in uh, Fairbanks, Alaska for uh, a few years and in Anchorage for a few years. And then uh, about the late 90s, I got into doing other work, but that skill set was still useful to me. And uh, there's not a real market for it here anymore, but I didn't love it so much. I do it as, as artwork and periodic uh, repairs and, and creations and restoration for people. Mm-hmm. Um so that's basically my neon journey in a in a nutshell with how I got involved in it and
0: what uh, was the landscape in the 90s like or I say late, the early 90s in Texas when you were kind of going at it what, can you remember i guess what what that impact looked like at, you kind of obviously were around a lot of shops i'm sure at that time
1: Yeah i was in uh, Houston And there were a lot of shops, you know, selling things like the the cactus plants growing out of the flower pots. And I made some things like that too. And, um, just other things that, you know, sculptures and things, people could hang on the wall. And, and of course at that time, you know, it was still a primary medium for sign work. So there was, you know, lots of channel letters to be made and things like that. And, uh, I stayed pretty busy with that, um, you know, both down there as well as up here for a while.
0: And then I I think at this point, you know, especially online, you know, who inspires you, I guess, at that point where you were making the transition, uh, you know, taking it to Alaska. I mean, were the skill sets comparable? Did people want the same thing? Did you have to kind of, kind of, like you said, the the market had shifted at that point, especially in the mid nineties, I think there was a huge influx of, Plastics and, and other competition from LED coming at that time. Uh, was it just a general thinking that you, you know, signs are not as, uh, I guess, maybe welcome in that area? Maybe the natural beauty? I'm not sure.
1: Well, th- it, there were still uh, a lot of them. Um, part of the issue here, is, you know, of course, uh, anything with mercury in it is going to be a little dim in the winter because we, especially back then, we were still seeing. You know 35 40 below temperatures on a regular basis and uh, with the occasional dips to 50 below so you would primarily be working with with neon you know in those outdoor applications and uh, we tried some different gas mixes and pressures and, and found some things that worked better for us and and gave us a brighter product but uh you know toward the the late 90s, early 2000s, I think, uh, you know, there was a, a real shift away from doing that. And and uh, and, and also that's kind of coincided with the economy. Our, our economy up here tends to run a little bit opposite or shifted out of phase by a few years compared to the lower 48. So, you know, when you guys have it good down there, it may not be that great here. And then people don't want to spend the money to repair their signs and and things like that. And uh, I ended up getting into aerial surveying and photogrammetric mapping uh, starting around 97 and uh, did that for about 18 or 19 years. I'm still involved in surveying and mapping today um, as my primary bread and butter. But um, I, I would say you know, more recently as I've gotten more into the neon again, you know, the online resources and being able to connect with other people, even at a great distance is so much more improved than it used to be. And people are so much more willing to talk about it, and show you their work or discuss their techniques with you, that it's made a world of difference. And I'm a member of several, you know, online, you know, pages and whatnot. And, you know, there's several people on there that are very helpful and I in turn have, have tried to be helpful to others as well.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I would sum up your Instagram page. Maybe it hasn't been on there and is just listening right now wants to check uh, Robert out, uh, you know, H-A-U-S-H-R-O-B-E-R-T. So just, you know, Austin Robert, you go on there and uh, take a look at what he's got because yeah, I'm always constantly learning from others. Like you said, there's this general feeling that things are kind of coming together. And that's my favorite part is, you know, we don't have to kind of rely on the people that are next door to us. We can actually go overseas or go across country with it. Like, you know, being one click, <laughs> you know, not having to chart yourself around. And things like pre-war Jefferson transformers and, uh, things like, you know, Corning's 1949 catalog stuff that I've, you know, would greatly admire if I even came across it and you're, you know, putting it online for people to see, you know, um, you know, full electrodes from the 1940s. I mean, I don't know, what it's like to be in everyone's shop but i can guarantee you this stuff's really non accessible how are you able to kind of transition into i guess now you're in the collecting mode and you also tinker quite a bit with automotive we'll get to that in a minute but it's fascinating mm-hmm. how you've come across all these things is it easy for you do you have to go out and look for it i mean how are you you know sourcing all this so, stuff
1: so so i've always been a collector of things even as a kid, I, I practically grew up in surplus stores and, and electronic shops. Um, my wife says I'm a hoarder. I tell her she's an enabler. That's my favorite line. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but um, it, part of it, uh, my uh, surveying job, you know, over the years has taken me to a lot of places, both in Alaska and the lower Forty Eight. And anytime I would get sent somewhere, I would make an effort to go hit up the junk shops, to hit up, you know, other places that might have things I was interested in when I had spare time to do that. And so a lot of artifacts were found and brought back that way. Um, and then, of course, eBay came along and that made it very easy. You could look for some of this stuff from your own home. The trick is somebody had to at least have it and, and realize, hey, maybe I can sell this for a couple bucks. And so then the word of mouth aspect, you know, I'm, I'm always on the hunt for this stuff and I make it known. And um, that's been helpful, too, because then sometimes somebody will go, well, I've got, you know, X, are you interested in it? And, you know, maybe some arrangement will be sorted out. And so that's helped me source a lot of the stuff. And, um, you know, some of it's stuff I've had since I was, you know, doing it, you know, 30 years ago. And and some of it is more recent acquisitions, but,
0: uh, A lot of unique you, things too. Like, uh, for instance, you know, when you look at, I guess you would say, you know, even like when we talked about the electrodes, um, various ribbon fires too, you know, like I'll come across certain things, um, even like Sylvania has been in business like cool glass tubing that you've shown from back in the day Uh, and like Corning Novial like stuff like 12 millimeter you get a chance to using this stuff at all like you dip back into that at all and you talked about some restoration work locally
1: yes any any, uh, anything that I have enough of that I can utilize it I'll use it Um, when I get down to that last stick of Novial you know, that one will get put away, you know, but, uh, you know, it's that type of situation. But I, I like being able to use the vintage tools. A, a lot of people are into collecting the vintage signs and they'll talk about that, but I have a great love of the vintage tools used to make those signs. And, uh, I, you know, I've collected several vintage burners from the thirties and forties and then, uh, a friend who actually a friend named Jack Hazley in in Arlington, Texas, he actually started calling me the neon archaeologist and and the name kind of stuck. but I ended up finding a that he had a a pre-war roots blower that um, was an extra small one, probably too small for normal purposes but I had found some vintage torches that were really tiny and I thought, wow, I could build a full, little portable, all pre-war bench that I could wheel into a classroom and do a demonstration with. And so I bought this blower from him and I plumbed it up. And of course, that type of blower, you need a surge tank. And I thought, well, what was available to a guy building this prior to World War II? And my wife found me a, a riveted copper fire extinguisher And so I plumbed that in as the surge tank to dampen out the pulsations of air from the blower. And uh, this thing is is just a marvelous little roll around bench. It was kind of inspired by one of uh, um, Charles Eisler's uh, small neon plants that he was selling during the 30s. And uh, it's kind of my interpretation of it, using all vintage parts to build it. And and then I actually use this stuff. I mean, I have a modern plant too, but I like using the vintage stuff as well.
0: And that's part of it too, is like, I think, you know, everybody has their unique angle, but I would sum up your aesthetic as, yeah, like being uh kind of holistic in your thinking. I think what's been a highlight to me is just being able to relive some of those experiences that, you know, I was never even possible to be around. I think anyone who's thinking about what it was like, uh, you're right. There's a huge focus on the signage part, um, but not a lot to do with the actual elements that go into making these signs. And uh, that's the part that gets me really excited is that uh, you've got a really great collection or at least get, get it, get that. That comes across very naturally, you know, like, old mason light neon salesman type cases where you independently can switch tubes on and off. I've seen that obviously I know it's out there, but not to the degree of, you know, here's one from the forties. Here's something from the, you know, the late fifties. It's, it's refreshing. And I think I can only imagine where you're going to end up in the, (laughs) you know, and some of these things have to obviously end up in a collection somewhere because they're so unique. I mean, there's really only probably a handful of them out, you know,
1: Um, one thing I've been doing, um, because I'm also a, a vintage technical book lover, I've been amassing a, a pretty good library of uh, not just the old sales brochures, like the Corning one you mentioned earlier, but uh, the books that were you know, available to people that were in the business. And uh, I've kind of been trying to make that worldwide in scope. I found several from various other countries. And, uh, one of my projects I've invested in a fairly decent, uh, purpose-built book scanner. And, uh, I, my goal is to preserve this stuff digitally and, uh, and make it available. And I've scanned some shop notes for, for people and put those online as well, you know, old shop notes. But, um, you know, with the, even if you don't speak, uh, you know, German, for example, you know, the ability now to scan something, make it a searchable PDF and throw it through a translator. It'll be a little bit choppy, but if you understand the basic subject matter, it'll be close enough that you'll be able to get through it. And so you have the opportunity to learn how other people around the world were doing it. And, uh, there are some very distinct differences in bending style and and techniques from the Europeans versus the U S and there's a reason for that and they're top notch in their field. And it's interesting that, you know, how they evolved along a parallel line, but a slightly different path than, than our bending did. Um, so I'm trying to put all this together. One of my projects is a book on the subject and, um, who knows how long that'll take me to get done. I'm still amassing information to go in it. and Only done a little writing on it at this point, but uh, it's an ongoing thing.
0: Yeah. And the best lesson from that I've learned, especially looking at all this is just, you know, like you said, is being able to index some of that information, uh, at least with what I would like to do with the podcast is to give people a glimpse into yeah other working relationships, other types of ideas of bringing new projects to uh, to the table. Um, but on that on that end, uh, I know I would say you know anybody's looking at this and sort of trying to think about ways to to go out there and preserve it. Those are great ideas. You know I love the digital uh, scanning portion where not only can you give people uh, you know a heads up as to what's happening inside of some of these catalogs, but now, like you said, is like the translations because uh, I think what I've noticed is that Neon is very quite international at this point. You know, maybe that we didn't realize that before. But uh, do you get time to connect with local museums or other you know countries? That do people reach out to you at all online?
1: I I have had a, a few inquiries and, and uh, a couple of invitations to to come visit places both in the lower forty-eight as well as overseas. And uh, hope to be able to do some more of that, you know, when travel is a little less restricted. Uh, right. As thank you know at the moment I can't even leave my state. So it's kind of a <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, we look at that and I think you know, what is normal for anyone's schedule has now changed quite a bit. Um you know, I think back on a few months ago, it would have would have been a completely different conversation or three months ago. But uh you know, yeah, I was planning, I was planning a summer trip to go pick
1: up some vintage equipment um, down south and also bring back some glass to work with, and uh, that's that's obviously put on hold till next year perhaps.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you know even I think virtually though we can look at you know uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Neon Speaks folks um, out in California, but they're putting together a new. It's actually going to be completely virtual this this year. It's usually a very strong focus on the subject and there's lots of historians, so um, Mm -hmm. I'd be happy to connect with those folks because it appears to me that you would fit quite well into that category, especially with all the work that you've done. Uh, I know they're having some speakers and stuff online, so uh, I might be able to sort that out a little bit more. So um, if you find that interesting, I'll let you know. Yeah, yeah. that would Yeah, on the spectrum of Neon, uh, any places or you know, that you'd like to end up, that you haven't looked at yet, other states? Have you, I mean, have you been able to travel quite extensively prior to COVID? I mean, does there ever, I guess, you know, you have a pretty strong network in Texas, it sounds like, still.
1: Right, and, and, you know, a few years ago, my wife and I loaded up a travel trailer and took a three-month trip all over the lower 48. And uh, so I was able to stop in the American Sign Museum, and visit with Tom and Greg at uh, Neon Works of Cincinnati. They're great folks. Nice. And, uh, they're uh, joined with the museum there, and I was able to look through the collection there. Um, I'm actually wanting to make another trip down there. I highly recommend it. And, um, you know, of course, we've traveled, you know, back east and west and you know i i still haven't gotten down to uh, the mona museum in la yet that's on my list of, of places to go and i've got friends in in la- the los angeles area as well and you know that are involved in neon and want to come down and visit
0: mm-hmm. oh, those are great locations and both places i would recommend highly recommend to uh, to that degree um, uh, anything, any passing notes here? Do people can go check your workout? Obviously you mentioned the Instagram, uh, heavily on that, but, uh, I know you got a website too.
1: Yeah, I have a, a, a old blog page that I had worked on fairly diligently for a while and then stopped a, a, about a year and a half ago. It's dot uh, novialjourneys.com, novial spelled like the glass, N-O-V-I-O-L journeys, And um, some of my uh, neon stuff and related historical stuff is on there, as as well as a smattering of other things. If someone were wanting to reach out to me, the best way right now would be, you know, shoot me a message through Instagram or uh, email to uh, neonarchaeology at gmail.com. And that's archaeology spelled with the the A-E-O variation. I, I understand some people have shortened it in recent years, but, uh, you know, Queens English anyway, <laughs> um, that, that would be the best way right now. I, I do have a domain for a, a more neon focused website that I want to set up and I just haven't set it up yet. But my intent is to put up an online library as well as gallery and some other things there. Um, and when I get that done, I'll, of course, you know, make it known.
0: Yeah. Well, please do, and we'll pass it on to uh, to everyone. Well, Robert, I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, obviously, a wealth of information. Be sure to include some links in there get people on uh, to what you're doing. But uh, really great stuff, and, and, you know, can't wait to see what you come up with next. Thank you very much. Hey, guys. Hope you enjoyed that show. If you haven't done so, please leave us a review on your podcast aggregator of choice. We have a lot of great Neon guests coming up, and as always, thanks for listening.